This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. Mountains is our topic today. That does not sound grammatically correct. Mountains is our topic. Mountains are our topic. Whatever. We're going to talk about mountains today. Uh, Mountains as they appear in scriptures, how we understand uh, the meaning of mountains throughout that scriptural story, and how they actually come up in our liturgical life as well. When I think of mountains, Father Jeffrey, we live in Canada. I go go to the Rocky Mountains, right? Um, You know, I've had, I've actually personally never gone hiking up one of the in in the Rockies or anything like that. But I know people who go up mountains and it's quite an exhilarating experience being able to uh, put in that work, get up the mountain and then look and you have this, you you might even say the sort of God's eye view of creation. Uh, I don't know. Do you go hiking at all, Father Jeffrey, up mountains? Uh, probably not as much as I would like, maybe. I think there's an, a, a kind of ideal of, of that. And I think as we explore the biblical vision of things, we'll find that, you know, we're kind of called to do that. But, uh, but no, I, I prefer actually um, either sailing or uh, cycling on, on flat ground. It's kind of hard to cycle up a mountain. Yes, indeed. It's easier to cycle down a mountain, I find. <laughs> Well, even that can be dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, mountains, okay, so mountains in many cultures are a place of honor and a place of connection with the divine or or the spiritual realm or or whatever. I think of Mount um, um, Fuji in in, uh, Japan, right, is a spiritually charged mountain. and the same thing existed for the people of Israel. You had these high places. And often when you have these stories of Noah builds an altar, Abraham builds an altar, all these different characters build an altar, they'll, they'll build it on these high places. Um, and I guess let's maybe start there. Like, is, is it simply because it's higher and closer to God? Like, is that just as simple as it gets? Like, why mountains are important in that sense, Father? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental metaphor here of up good, down bad, um, you know, kind of carries forward into, you know, that sort of thing. And it's not, you know, an unnatural thing to have concluded, right? Um, in most parts of the world, to go up means to find kind of more secure ground, right? Whether that's about being secure from, you know, floods or storms or, you know, the the kind of all of that, that chaos that we talked about uh, in the kind of watery realm uh, and so forth. So, the, I mean, the very first parts of, of Genesis make this point, right? That God, you know, divides the waters and, and brings forward the that secure dry land on which to stand. And of course, the, the most secure kind of, of, of land would be that high place, right? So the the rock, the the fortress, all of that imagery will you know be really powerfully, you know, expressed in in the scriptures. But but essentially, you know, to be on on a high place is is to be closer to God. I mean, God is in His heaven, so we picture that as above the sky. The word in in Greek for sky and for heaven is the same word, right? Uranos. So um, to, to go up a mountain is to, is to be in that firm, solid, secure place, but closer closer to God in, in some sense. And then that is the the way that the metaphor, you know, develops. Now, obviously it is a metaphor. It's a powerful metaphor. It's a symbol that's used again and again and again, but the, the, 
clearly this is not a you know, to be taken absolutely literally. So for those valley dwellers in our listening group, you know, it's not that you are, you know, further away from God in any sort of real sense, but but that the way the imagery works, the way the symbolism works, and as we'll see, it goes right through the whole of, of the scriptural narrative, the, that, that secure place, that place that God brings us and places us is on his mountain. Mm, yeah, that reminds me, uh, like th- there's this line in um, the song of the sea when, when the song of Moses, when Israel is leaving Egypt, you know, God breathes out his spirit, breathes out his breath onto the water and it separates the water separate and the Israel passes uh, on dry ground to the other side. And then the waters come back and at near the end of that hymn in Exodus chapter 15, there's this line that um the, the singers, the Israelites are saying, uh, you will uh, bring us and plant us into the mountain of your inheritance, right? This idea of our, our, uh, our resting place as a nation is going to be on, we're going to be planted. So there's that sort of garden imagery, right? But also in the mountain of your inheritance, that place that is for you, right? We're going to be with you, God, on this garden mountain thing. And and when I think of mountains in the scriptures, you know, some of the big ones come to mind, things like Mount Sinai is probably the most famous or Mount Zion. But I've also heard that Eden is a mountain. And that one, I think, is a little more confusing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like Eden being a mountain? I, I don't know if other people have heard that, but I think it's worth talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, the place you started, though, is indeed the place to start here, because the earliest bit of all of the scriptures is that hymn of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. So if there's anything to be said about, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis, they're a projection backwards from this moment, right? So, I mean, some people will say, well, look how the, the, you know, the the poet here, the, the hymnographer has picked up on the themes of, of the separation of the waters and the dry land being, you know, brought out in the, uh, that hymn of creation of chapter one. But of course, chapter one of Genesis was written, you know, a thousand five hundred years after the, the hymn of Moses. So it's actually the other way around. So that when someone sets down in the exilic or post-exilic context of, of, of Israel after Babylon, to write this beautiful hymn of creation, uh, they're going to pick up on the themes that were evoked in that very moment of the genesis of of Israel, which is to say the exodus from from Egypt, right? So that hymn that says God has brought us out of the low place and has taken us through the sea, part of the seas, brought dry land forward, and then this image that you uh, you know, quoted there from the end of the the hymn in Exodus chapter fifteen, you brought them and planted them on the mountain of your possession, the place, O Lord, that you made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So it's that image, that symbol, that is then projected backwards. You know, first, you know, in in the way we read the Bible, you know, Genesis chapter one comes first, but then of course the story of Eden, Genesis chapter two, which is an older story, not as old as as the hymn of of, of Moses in Exodus 15, but it is picking up on this same imagery. So we look carefully, right, at um, what's going on in this account of, of creation, the 
Genesis chapter two, uh, picking up at at verse four uh, B. Basically, that's where the that original hymn of, of Genesis chapter one ends. The chapter divisions are later and not very accurate for here. Uh, so Genesis chapter two, verse four B and forward. So in the day that the Lord made the the earth and the heavens. So there's this picture of a kind of still a desolation, right? So there's there's not yet any plants, no vegetation, there's not rain yet. So all there is is dry ground, interestingly, right? But from that place, the Lord brings forward the waters. And we talked about this before in, in, in the, the, the symbolism of water and so forth. But note how the waters come here. They flow out of Eden and then down to all of the world, right? So it may not say there's... You know, Eden is a garden planted at the top of a mountain, but it talks about waters that flow out of it and divide and become the four branches, these great rivers that kind of uh, basically fertilize and 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 cause fruitfulness to, to come forward all across the world, right? So the planting of the, the garden, the planting of the human being in the garden as the gardener, as the one who is to reflect the glory of creation back to, to God himself, the, the imagery is in this kind of high place, a place where from which water flows to the whole of the earth. And so you can imagine, I mean, rivers do have their sources on mountains, right? They have to just Gravity works to, to yeah, kind of yeah, draw yeah. the water down towards the sea and so forth. So the implication here is that this is a high place, right? And so that image of the garden on a mountain, that place where God dwells, that place where God intends his creation to flourish, where God plants human beings to be the gardeners, to be uh, his, you know, his representatives amidst creation, you know, it, it's this... It's on an ongoing image throughout the scriptures, right? And so we're going to return it to that again and again in the Psalms and the prophets and so forth. That imagery is picked up again and again. And that's where, you know, prophets will go to encounter God. And you mentioned, you know, Mount Sinai, because I mean, immediately after that Exodus event that, that is sung about in Exodus 15, I'd say the oldest part of the whole of the scriptures, there is the, an encounter with God on a mountain. Right, and and you know that's where you know the the covenant with Israel is is sealed. The law, the Torah, is is delivered, and where all of the the symbolism you know kind of comes to to its its climax, really, in in terms of all of the things that God intends for creation and for His people that will ultimately see their fulfillment for us as Christians in, of course, the incarnation of Christ Himself. There'll be mountains, you know, in in the life of Jesus too, because they'll pick up on the same symbolism of the garden on the mountain where God dwells and dwells with His people. If you haven't yet become a patron of Enacting the Kingdom over on Patreon, you're only getting a small fraction of everything we're up to. When you become a patron, for as little as $3 a month, you'll get immediate access to over 100 Patreon-exclusive episodes, weekly new releases, private live streams, and Patreon community events like Bible studies. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. On that basic level, you know, up is good, down is bad, right? So when we're this, our biblical reading tool belt, we have this idea, okay, 
when we when we're reading about a mountain in scriptures, we should have maybe a positive association with that. But like, let's let's build on that. Uh, that it's not only up is good, but up is good because like it's the union of heaven and earth or like an encounter with the divine that's going to happen there. And, you know, when we, when we're reading those scriptures, you know, that, that bell should be going off in our mind as someone's going up a mountain, there's going to be an encounter or there's going to be some kind of communion or union uh, with that heavenly realm, that God realm and that earthly realm. Is, is that about right? Is that a, is that a good next step of, of adding, you know, into our toolkit there? Absolutely. And, Consequently, it's not good in a sense of, um, you know, this is just like happy-go-lucky and, you know, sure, let's just all uh, have a stake in this and everything. That that Mount Sinai event that follows just a few chapters after the, the exodus from Egypt, it's terrifying. It's terrible. I mean, go to Exodus chapter 19, the Lord says to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. This is a few months after the, the coming through through the Red Sea. Um, have them wash the clothes, prepare for the third day, because that third day is going to be pretty awesome, uh, pretty awful in, 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 in that fullest sense. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, be careful not to go up the mountain or touch the edge of it even, right? Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. And, you know, I can imagine that first person who's thinking, <laughs> you know, I've heard the trumpet, is it, you know, can I go yet? You know, because this sounds awful and terrifying, right? So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated them. They washed their clothes. He said to the people, prepare for the third day. We're, we're getting ready for this awesome event. And of course, it is awesome. There's thunder, there's lightning, the thick cloud, the blast of the, tr the trumpet, the people are trembling and so forth. And, and Moses brings the people out of the camp, you know, to meet God. And it's in this moment, of course, that Moses will go up and hear the voice of God and, and the Ten Commandments are given, the beginning and the, the heart of, of the whole of, of the law, right? But it's, it's a terrifying encounter, it's just joining of heaven and earth. Um, and why is it terrifying? Because, you know, God is so far beyond us, right? God is this, is the unique thing, here, right? That, that God is Kadosh, the, the Agios, the, the holy, the, the one totally and utterly beyond us. And we can't just sort of waltz into his presence, right? We are fragile, broken, vulnerable, contingent, you know, creatures and so forth. So the scriptures, through all this beautiful symbolic language, convey that to us. This is a gulf that, you know, we cannot bridge. God himself has to, has to come down. And the whole of the story of the scriptures then becomes about how does heaven come to earth, right? The very last image in the whole of the Bible will be heaven and earth married together in the new Jerusalem, right? But it begins, you know, with that first hymn of the Exodus where God will plant his people on his mountain. But how that happens and the, and the, the, the kind of method, the process the, through which God enacts that coming together of heaven and earth on the mountain will be in, indeed the whole story of the scriptures because we are not worthy, we are not holy, holy in that sense of, of being capacitated to, to encounter and experience God 
you know, fully. It's terrifying. It's expressed in this violent language of, of death that comes upon those, you know, who do that. But that's not the end of the story. Because in fact, the New Testament authors, particularly in the letter to the Hebrews, this very moment is, ev- is evoked, but then inverted because of what happens in Christ, right? That we are now made worthy to come and to experience what the people of Israel were told, mm-hmm. don't even touch the mountain, right? And so if you go to Hebrews you know, chapter 12, you'll find this whole thing being retold, but now through the lens of what Jesus Christ represents, that face of God and face of, 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 of man coming together and heaven and earth joined in his person in order to effect what God's creational and covenantal purposes were, which was to dwell with his people on a mountain. This brings new light, no pun intended, uh, actually pun intended. Um, this brings new light on that story of the transfiguration, right? The story of, of Jesus Christ bringing three of his closest friends and, and disciples up a mountain, right? And, you know, if you're reading the, the New Testament, you know, ding, 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 right? What are those associations? Okay, a mountain is good. It's a connection with God. It's the union of heaven and earth. Okay, Jesus is leading his some of his disciples up a mountain. So we should have that in mind. And those images of Sinai, the smoke, the lightning, right? Um, Moses himself goes up a mountain and speaks with, you know, uh, he receives the law from God, right? So then, you know, the story of the transfiguration, Jesus goes up and then he's transfigured before their eyes. And who, lo and behold, who's on the mountain actually talking to Jesus is Moses, and Elijah, Elijah, who has his own story on a mountain talking with Yahweh. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and what are they he, talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. They're talking about the Exodus. Um, it's, it's very fascinating. You know, all of these, it's, it's like, it's like the, the scripture, the Bible writers knew what they were doing, Father. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in some sense, once you get this, in terms of the, as what you call the, I think the tool set, right, or the toolkit of of the these symbols and everything, you don't actually need the story to be told to you. You could actually put it together before you even heard it, right? Yeah, you could say, yeah. okay, well, God is going to come as a, as a human being. Well, what's he going to do? Well, it's going to involve a mountain. It's going to involve clouds it, it and lightning to. and thunder. It's going to involve, you know, uh, Moses and Elijah, and it's going to involve you know talking about the Exodus as this the final you know, part of God's plan to bring his people to a mountain and to dwell with them there, right? So, I mean, we could write the New Testament if as long as, you know, we understand what, you know, the, the symbol set of, of the old uh, covenant, the, the the Hebrew scriptures are, are, are all about. And that's essentially what the apostles and, and early Christian writers are doing. They're just, they're doing the obvious thing of reflecting on what they experienced in Jesus according to what they knew of the, the scriptures and God's plans revealed, you know, in them. It's it, there's not a it, it, none of this is a surprise if you if you kind of have been right, reading right. all along, right? So and there's the difference, you know, but there's a difference between Jesus going up the mountain and Moses going up the mountain, right? Like the 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 image of Jesus going up the mountain is is he, you know, if you were to compare the stories of Moses going up the mountain. It's not, uh, they're not analogous in, in terms of their role in the story, right? Because Moses actually appears and talks to Jesus, right? I think Jesus is being portrayed here in that position of Yahweh. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is, Jesus is the lawgiver here, right? And Moses is the law receiver. Uh, Jesus is the one who is the word of God who spoke to the prophets, and Elijah is the prophet to whom the word of the Lord came. So, absolutely, this is this is what is being depicted. It's it's the in a way, it's the veil that is lifted on Sinai, right? Because in Sinai, God's face is not revealed. Right, Moses is only able to see the back parts of God in in this in his encounters with 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 God. In other words, he cannot see God face to face. Only Jesus reveals the Father. Only Jesus reveals the fullness, you know, of, of who God is. And so it's in looking in the face of Jesus that moment of transfiguration that we see the fullness uh, of who God is. So it's like a, the veil that was on Sinai, that where only things are are kind of partially revealed, revealed in shadowy form, are are now seen in their full light. Right. This is the illumination of that original encounter, you know, with God on that mountain because this is moving into its last stages of of fulfillment. If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five-star review on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there is still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. So the transfiguration happens in the narrative, uh, in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It happens kind of right in the middle of the story, right? Um, you know, it's not quite, well, the chiastic center, right? Uh, but th- you would think that that would be it. Like that would be the whole point of Jesus coming. He goes up a mountain and he reveals the union of heaven and earth. And he is Yahweh, the, he's Yahweh embodied here in Israel, that's not the end of the story. And, you know, there's, as Father Hopko used to say, it's all downhill from there, um, you know, because you have to come down the mountain. But Golgotha, right? That, that, that hill upon which Christ was crucified, that is kind of the, the ultimate mountain, isn't it, Father? Yeah, I think you can see the transfiguration as the foreshadowing of what is possible for human beings. Because in that moment, the face of God, the face of, of man, you know, come together and are revealed in that full glory, but that's not made available yet for everyone else. We could still arguably say we're in the position the people of Israel were in when they were being told, don't come near the mountain, don't touch the mountain. In fact, our icons depict this with the way that the disciples are kind of tumbling down, you know, the mountain in, in various kind of poses. And and the, the Treparian of the feast talks about those who are able to to receive that that glory as far as they were able right so at this point human beings are scarcely able to to share in what jesus reveals of the potential of human beings transfigured in the in the, the life and and light and glory of god and so that final move in the gospels towards the the passion the death the resurrection and the ascension of, of christ is about making that Sinai promise available, you know, to all. And in, in fact, the very thing that's overcome is the thing with which people are threatened if they touch the mountain, right? In 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 the Exodus narrative, which is death, right? So, um, again, I mentioned earlier that Hebrews, you know, chapter twelve, to quote a little bit, you know, from that, picking up at verse eighteen, you know, you have not come to something. The writer to the Hebrews says that can be touched. 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet. What's he talking about? He's talking about, you know, Sinai, right? That, that thing you can't touch, the blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom, the tempest, the sound of the trumpet. That's all that Sinai moment of heaven and earth, you know, coming together. And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that another word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. So it's all that reference to, to Sinai, right? Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, but this is what's happened at Golgotha. This is what's happened at Calvary at the moment of Christ's own transfiguration of death itself through his death and resurrection. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, a great feast, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is just packed with you know, imagery, right? So this is the, the innocent victim like Abel, but the one who has voluntarily gone to his death to shed his death for the life of the world. One who, who is not just you know, an innocent victim, but one who has emptied death of its own you know, power. That's what happens on, you know, here it's called Mount Zion, but of course, within that Mount Zion, which is understood to be all of Jerusalem, a city of seven hills, famously, you know, um, it, that place of Golgotha, the place of the skull, the skull traditionally, you know, according to Origen and those after him being the skull of Adam himself, where, you know, death that came into the world at that place right? We have this new covenant that's made, the sprinkling of blood, which had happened at Sinai when Moses had brought down, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and to seal that covenant, blood was sprinkled on, on the people. But now the sprinkling of the blood is this reversal of, of, the, of death itself, that separation from God. In other words, we can come to the mountain, right? We can come to the mountain without fear, without shame. We can be made partakers in the holiness that allows us to share in God's own holiness. So what is present in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is now possible for all as we come to share in, you know, what was promised to Moses, right? And was promised, you know, to the people of Israel coming out of, of Egypt that God would plant them on a mountain, he would dwell with them, and there would be feasting and rejoicing uh, unto the ages. And, and that's finally what we will see, as I say, at the end of the book of Revelation, in this coming together of, of heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, God who dwells on a mountain with his people in a garden, a new Eden, from which the tree of life, right, which we had seen planted in Eden, is now going to heal all the nations and all the world. And so it all comes together here. And I just, I love the way that the writers of the Hebrews here, you know, brings that, that powerful image of Sinai, which was so terrifying and so terrible and so, so violent and so, so off-putting, and now makes it this is the big theme of the letter to the Hebrews, of course, is the access we now have, right? We now have a permanent mediator, a permanent tabernacle, a permanent sacrifice, and a, and a permanent, you know, opportunity to, to share in that heaven and earth reality of the mountain, the garden on the mountain of the Lord. Would it be fair to characterize 
you know, going to divine liturgy, you know, and receiving communion as that sort of being on the mountain. Like, is that, is that sort of something that could be on our mind and, and, uh, you know, absolutely. And mm -hmm. all the imagery is about going up, right? Mm -hmm, We, mm -hmm. we, we, we enter, we, we come, we worship and, and that, you know, those Psalms, you know, talk about, you know, being placed on on the mountain of the Lord and and and, and rising up the, the mountain of the Lord, we sing the the hymns of ascents, you know, uh, at matins and so forth. But yeah, when we come to church, we are entering into God's mountain. We are we are ascending that mountain, and all those things that are you know talked about here that that innumerable angels in festal gathering that's evoked throughout. The divine liturgy, right? Of course, we make our the the entrance with the gospel, which is properly the beginning of of the service in a way. You know, everything else was preliminary; it was done processionally in, in ancient, you know, centuries and so forth. But from that moment, we we evoke the angels and we enter. We sing the the Trisagion hymn, which is the hymn. Kadosh, 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 you know, Agios, 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 that, that Isaiah saw around the throne of God in that elevated place the, in the heavens on the mountain. And, and again, when we enter with the, the gifts of, of bread and wine for the divine uh, Eucharist, we are evoking the angels, right? The, the cherubim that, that we represent. And, and then we sing, you know, holy, 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 um, uh, you know, within the anaphora and so forth. So again and again and again, we're, we're touching on, on these themes, you know, precisely. And it's, it's not that the access that, you know, the Hebrews talks about here is one that leads us to just treat this all casually, right? Because we still retain within the the liturgy that sense of awe, of wonder. And so, you know, from time to time people say, well, you know, why do we use these words like dread and, you know, and so forth about God in the liturgy? Sure, he's just like loving, right? Well, yes, loving, but also, you know, this terrifying, awesome, dread, you know, person, that we are brought to, to encounter. So we come with some degree of, of trepidation, some degree of trembling as Moses does. And that, that language is also there, you know, in, in our liturgy, right? Particularly the prayers of, of preparation and prayers of access and so forth. We, we don't come at this with anything other than the same understanding the people of Israel, the of Moses himself and, and the prophets did when they encountered the living God. This is still you know, as much as it's been made available to us, this is still a moment of, of profound and, and 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 terrifying significance, right? And and we we ought to be mindful of that too as we come to the liturgy. As much as we celebrate that access and the permanent mediator and all that glorious stuff that the the letter to the Hebrews talks about, we are still in the position of those who are being brought here by grace and who are. We need to be understanding that that separation between the created and uncreated is something that only God himself has been able to overcome. It's not our own merits, not our own worth, it's not our own power or capacity. It's 100% the grace of God that has brought us and planted us in the garden on his mountain. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.